Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Frankie and welcome to Vision of Health, the podcast where I talk to qualified experts about what being healthy really looks like. Through our conversations, we'll bridge the gap between the scientific evidence base and you, the everyday person who just wants to live a healthier lifestyle. I am very much on a mission to provide evidence-based educational content and practical tips that you can actually implement in your everyday lives. Our wonderful sponsors, Fresh, who have supported me for a number of years now, share the same vision, to open up conversations on taboo subjects, to bust the health myths and improve women's health. Fresh are not only industry leaders in women's intimate hygiene products, but also committed on educating on all things women's health. And this podcast just wouldn't be possible without their support. But you can also catch on socials at femfresh underscore UK and on their website, femfresh.co.uk. I'm Dr. Frankie, and this is my vision of health. When I turned 30 last year, like many of you, I started to feel that niggling in the back of my mind. Is that my biological clock ticking? I'd like to have children one day in the future, but when am I going to feel ready to have a baby? I feel like fertility is such a sensitive and personal topic and that we often avoid these conversations until the moments where it really matters and the pressure's on. Here to empower us to tackle this head-on is renowned fertility expert, Dr. Helen O'Neill, a guest that I really admire on a professional level and one that I've been itching to speak to. Dr. Helen O'Neill is a leading expert in fertility and reproductive science. She is a lecturer in reproductive and molecular genetics at UCL. She has a master's in prenatal genetics and fetal medicine and a PhD in stem cell biology and developmental genetics. With over 15 years experience, she leads a research group who look into genetic disorders associated with infertility. And if that's not enough, she's also the founder and CEO of leading biotech company, Hertility Health, who offer at-home hormone and fertility testing to empower women to take control of their health and their fertility. A seriously accomplished woman that we can all learn so much from. Helen, I am so excited to chat to you. I remember I first heard about Hertility Health when you just started three years ago now. And I have been following your journey ever since. And we had a conversation at your Hertility Health event a few weeks ago, and I've been dying to get you on. I think everything you stand for is just wonderful. And I'm so excited for this conversation. So thank you so much for your time. So tell me about your mission and why it's important for my listeners. I think everything about our mission is important for everyone, not just maybe female listeners, but everything that we stand for is about providing education, research-backed, data-informed insights about our bodies. I think we as a generation of human beings are so privileged to have information at our fingertips at almost any moment, and yet We are so connected through social channels, through email, through every form, whether it's calls, 
and so disconnected with our bodies. The idea that we can't just tap into information about the most fundamental aspects of our health really is the biggest gap in in modern day expectations, demands. We expect so much from e-commerce, which is that you can look something up, order it, and it will arrive at your house. And yet when it comes to pain or suffering or just even that niggling question about what a symptom might mean or whether you're fertile or not, we have so few tools to get personalized insights about our own bodies. And why do you think that is? I really don't know. There's days where I say that it's just down to the fact that women have been sidelined and we always use these excuses about women are more difficult study candidates and that's therefore why. But when I look at some of the solutions that have been built in almost every other aspect of life. And when I look at the funding that has gone into, even I think in the last two years alone, how much money has gone into funding companies that get you your groceries to your house on a bike or your food to your house in the evening. Just think, how lazy are we that we will invest in solutions that will just make us lazier rather than investing in solutions that make us healthier? Mm. I just, I don't know. I think it's a lack of prioritization. Yeah. And I think women's health in general, anything related to women's health is so been so largely underrepresented. Mm. So I work in cancer clinical trials and I always bang on about the fact that until the 90s, women were excluded from clinical trials because they felt it was too dangerous or too difficult to assess us because of what was going on with our hormones. I think a big issue is that there isn't this like universally defined definition of what women's health is. In your words, what is women's health to you? I think exactly as you said, there's no classic definition. We are still being defined by the other. So we are smaller than a male body and therefore maybe we should reduce the dose. We are defined even still, there's a textbook man, but there's also a textbook woman which assumes we have a 28-day cycle, that we ovulate on day 14, that we will go into perimenopause or menopause at a certain age. And it doesn't assume anything that takes into account the modern day woman. So our lifestyle, our exposures, our expectations. Moreover, it doesn't use data to inform that textbook number. And I always say that statistics can really be very misleading. So we always assume everyone's going to fall within this bell curve and we'll sit within the middle, but there are so many outliers. And for me, making assumptions about human beings and putting a definition it's the opposite to what I want to achieve using data, which is personalization and really using granularity to say you as an individual are quite different because of your menstrual cycle patterns, because of your exposures, because of previous history, because of your medical history, because of your height, because of your BMI, because of your ethnicity. That is what I strive to get towards is using as much detail to inform somebody about their general risk and their statistical significance uh, or probability of having a risk towards infertility or a specific condition or anything else. And, and I just don't think that should be outside of the realms of possibility given today's connection with technology. Yeah, I completely agree. And I feel like we're kind of we have these expectations from such a young age. Like if you feel like you want children, you kind of assume that you're on the path of life. Like you're going to grow up, you're going to get a good job, you're going to have a stable home, you might meet someone, you have a baby. And actually the science doesn't actually back that pattern up for many. And I think that for so many women, they can feel like 
their body has let them down and they're a failure because they don't conform to that thing we expected from a young age? I think there's two factors to that. One is that we expect to do the same amount of things or rather we're expected to do (laughs) twice as many things, which is get your education, get your career, get your social life sorted and also have a family settle down. And I think that at some point somebody forgot the memo, which was that we have completely changed the timeline and the feasibility that we're meant to do that in. So when you even look 10, 20 years ago, there used to be on this historical wall within the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, a poster which said what to do with the geriatric mother. And it was anything above 27 years old. Mm. And when you thought about the societal expectations on a woman back then, you got married at 18, 19, 20. You know, what were you doing for seven years? You probably were considered a geriatric mother. Now, at 27, if somebody told me they were going to get married, I would say, that's a bit young. You know, maybe you should play the field a bit. It's just, it's just a decade worth of reshifting to say, actually, I think maybe you should have fun. And yet nothing about our biology has caught up with the evolution of our ability to procreate. And of course we can procreate until we're 40 and beyond and many women do, but you as an individual have different risk factors, family history, menstrual cycle history. If you have a reproductive condition that you yourself should know, what are your limitations and when might you run out of time for want of a a definite better word? Yeah. Our body's not waiting for us to land our dream job. (laughs) It's not. Hertility Health, your baby. (laughs) What is it? Tell us about it. So Hertility is a way of us accessing information, personalized information about our bodies. How it works is that you do an online health assessment. From the outset, this health assessment seems very simple. Behind the scenes, it is a very complex algorithm-based assessment that we have taken all of the international diagnostic criteria and guidelines for over 18 of the most prevalent conditions relating to your reproductive health and embedded all of the risk factors within that health assessment. So while you might be filling it out, just answering questions about yourself, we're saying, okay, what are all the risk factors that you might have? It may be that you have none. So you do a health assessment that is quite complex. And as a result of the potential risks you might have, we tailor each panel of hormones. At a baseline, everybody gets their thyroid, ovarian reserve, cycling hormones tested. But should you trigger potential risk for maybe polycystic ovary syndrome, we'll also test your androgens. We never test anything that is not necessary to be tested because Mm. otherwise we end up with more questions than answers and it can be overwhelming. But that panel of hormones is assigned to you. You're sent a blood test that you can do from home. It's a capillary blood test. So you just do a quick prick of your finger, fill a vial, make sure you read the instructions and you're hot and ready and hydrated so that the blood flows, send it off to our lab. And then within eight days, we'll give you not just results. So we did not want to give anyone blood results because blood results are pretty useless without the extrapolation and interpretation of what they mean, not just in the context of the other hormones we test, but also in the context of the health assessment answers you've given us. So your report, will have a gynecologist who's reviewed it. We go through all of the hormones, explain what each hormone is, why we tested it and what it means for you. We then have actionable insights. So we've actually looked at over 54,000 clinical scenarios to make sure that we are really making sure 
nobody's left out. And then we have actionable insights to tell you what are the things that you can do within your life and just your lifestyle if you had a hormone out of range. If there's something that can be done for it, we'll let you know. And then we have a full a full range of clinical services. So should you require an ultrasound scan, you can book in to have an ultrasound scan. Bearing in mind the current wait list to see a gynecologist, there's over 700,000 women just to see a gynecologist wow. on the NHS. So while people say just go to your GP, actually, I, I really think that you'll be waiting a very long time to do that. And a GP won't test your reproductive hormones or your fertility. So it's really about streamlining that care. We have private gynecologists and we have fertility advisors as well. And should you want egg freezing or IVF, we'll put you through that that journey. I think the spotlight feature of that is the support that you get, not just the panel of blood results. You actually yeah. get the, the journey, the support to go with it. I'm actually very proud of that support because we looked at our, our rates for like customer satisfaction for the clinical customer satisfaction. And we have a, a satisfaction score of 98% and the industry average is 50%. The largest healthcare provider in the States, which is almost everybody's healthcare, has a CSAT score of 2%. Wow. So we've really strived to make sure that everyone is treated like a human being. What prompted you to make that? To make what? The app and this amazing test and this entire platform. The fact that as somebody who's spent so long educating myself about how everything works, when it came to normal conversations with people, they would say, what can I do? I was devoid of answers, including myself. As a woman in my 30s, I was there saying, mm, I'm kind of at the point of the graph where, where things start to go down. What should I do? And feeling so disillusioned and so lost. And actually, I thought if I, with all my education and contacts and people that I know, have no idea where to turn and didn't feel ready or definitely couldn't afford to go to a fertility clinic, that really made me feel like, what's the point? Like, what's the point of researching, educating myself if I can't actually apply any bit of knowledge to help myself or anybody else? And so that was the big moment to say, okay, this needs to be simplified and it shouldn't be so complex that we can't build it. Wow. I think the world needs more people like you. <laughs> Thank you. So what are they not telling us about our fertility? I would say they're not telling us anything, not just about our fertility, but how our bodies work. There is this onus on us to not get pregnant, to prevent anything happening to us. It's it's actually insane when you reverse the lens of this. So we're told, you know, she got pregnant or she couldn't get pregnant. And yet a woman can only get pregnant once a year. Okay, A man can impregnate as many women as he likes in one given year. We put this emphasis on women to educate themselves and not let themselves get pregnant, to go on contraception rather than educating both men and women that actually in any menstrual cycle, there are only a few days that you can actually get pregnant and maybe both parties should be informed about that. And so there's an incredible book and I can't think of the author now, but I'll check after it. We can add it in the caption. And it's called Ejaculate Responsibly. And it's about essentially reframing that narrative to tell men like ejaculate responsibly. You are essentially holding a loaded gun that can do a lot of damage. And yet we still frame from a societal level this expectation for us to educate ourselves. And we don't educate ourselves. That The point is both parties, yes, need to be educated, but we are at such a disconnect with how our hormones work in connection with our you know, thyroid 
our ovaries, how it affects our mood, our ability, our cognitive function, our metabolism, our sleep, all of these parameters. Yes, our fertility, but really being connected with your menstrual cycle and being educated. It doesn't take much to be educated on your menstrual cycle to understand actually the rhythm that your body is in from such a young age to such an old age. How is it that we can be so I don't know, removed from something so paramount in our personalities. We can all admit to our personalities changing on a monthly basis and knowing that actually we can anticipate hormonal changes throughout our lives as well. And not just the impact that those expected hormonal changes have on our fertility or our well-being, but our overall health. I think there's a revolution that needs to happen that educates women and men about this playbook that informs our day-to-day lives. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I thinking back to what I learned at school, I w- had the fear God put in me that I was going to get pregnant, like it would be this worst thing that could happen to you. And then suddenly something switches in your life when then you're panicking about it not being able to happen. And it's funny how that's what they focus on. Or when you learn about your menstrual cycle, you learn about the bleed, which is probably the least interesting part (laughs) of the whole menstrual cycle. What sort of changes do you think need to be made then kind of at a societal public health level? I see huge changes, but then I'm I'm very aware that I live in an echo chamber where almost mm. everything on my feed is about empowerment, body positivity, bleeding. And actually, it doesn't take much to then see the outside world, which is still so tainted in its views of just normal female health. An example, and I won't name the organization, so at Hertility, we do corporate benefits because we believe that, you know, if 50% of your workforce is going to be female, then you should be accounting for women's health and the productivity and loss that organizations sustain by not educating or providing health screening about menstruation, fertility, menopause. And so we provide that within workplaces. And one of the workplaces, the talk that I give is called Harnessing Your Hormones. And we debated for 40 minutes about what we should call it instead, because no female within that organization wanted to be seen to be going to a talk that was called harnessing your hormones for fear it looked like they weren't in control. Mm. And so it really gave me this impression, you know, I'm in a workplace that is, we literally have the labia lounge and the womb room and we've got the fallopian foyer and we are so empowered by all of this language and knowledge And yet seeing such a huge multinational organization and the fear in the women in that organization to ever be seen to be even questioning their hormones or their control of their bodies was Mm. staggering. On the topic of you doing corporate events and having a big company yourself, if I'm a 30-year-old career-orientated female what considerations do I really need to make about my fertility? And am I being sold a lie? Can I really have it all? I think you can have it all. (laughs) Definitely. I incorporated fertility with a full-time job at UCL when I was three months pregnant. She's now four. I have a company that has 60 employees. I mean, I've, I've made personal sacrifices, but we all make personal sacrifices when it comes to work. If you believe in something, I, I do believe we can have it all. I think a lot of it is in the framing and the narrative around, you know, motherhood and the penalty. And there is a significant penalty. And I am under no illusion as to the fact that I 
I, I know that it is not going to be so straightforward for people and there is a significant amount of emotional and physical, what's the word? I'm trying not to use torture. Um, <laughs> sacrifice is probably it when you want to do something for yourself and for others when you truly believe in it. But I think when it comes to what you need to know, so many people say to me, I don't want kids or I'm not ready for kids now. I'm going to check in a few years. And I, for me, it's not about just understanding your fertility. It's about understanding your hormones. And when we think, you know, I am quite privileged in that I see people from a younger age to that questioning thirties age to that mid thirties, really panicking to the late thirties, freaking out to the forties, wondering if they're perimenopausal. And the mind frame is still the same where you need to know what is your baseline best in terms of your hormones, irrespective of your desire to have children, irrespective of your need to, you know, know your fertility, your hormones are governing everything about your life. And unless you know, and when I spoke about statistics being misleading, you can fall within this wide reference range that your hormone might be okay. But actually for you, what might be your best would be on a higher end of that, still within the normal range. And so for me, I mean, we, everyone in the company has, we do monthly retesting wow. so that everyone knows, you know, what is my change, but also it's, it's because we need to contribute to the data and we are so committed to making sure that we actually redefine those reference ranges. What if the reference range for, and when I talk about reference range, I mean, what exact measurement of hormone is good for you yeah. as opposed to just blending everyone and saying you should fall within these wide parameters. And so I always say that if you know what your baseline best is and when you feel good, then actually when you test again and say you still fall within that wide reference range, but you're actually significantly lower, you'll say actually for me, for me, I know what my what my best is. And I think there's there's so much more investment we need to make into knowing our own bodies the amount of money people spend on supplements and things that actually are quite trivial and may or may not make a big difference in your day-to-day -day life. And yet our hormones are having a profound impact. So understanding that. So number one is checking your hormones. When it comes to understanding your fertility, we have such an amazing ability to know what our ovarian reserve is. We're limited in knowing what your the egg quality is, for sure. We're working on that. I'll tell you about it in a minute. But we, at Hertility, built something that took into account not just your ovarian reserve, which you people usually test your AMH, but also your thyroid, your cycling hormones, any previous infections, any previous medical history that might impact it. Take, for example, autoimmune conditions. Women are more likely to have autoimmune conditions. We just presented at a conference last week showing that if you have endometriosis, you are two and a half times more likely to have an autoimmune condition as well. So really taking into account almost every aspect of your life, including your lifestyle, your dietary preferences, your exercise levels, whether you smoke, vape or drink and how much, because we need all of those pieces of information to truly create a picture about you as an individual and your fertility. And that's what we're very dedicated to doing. But moreover, we're dedicated to doing it in a way that allows you to do it from home when you're scrolling in bed. And the reason I say scrolling in bed is almost the highest number of people who are on our website at any one time are between the hours of 9 p.m. and 2 in the morning. And it's those are the dark moments mm that we start to question and wonder. It's very easy to get swept away with the day-to-day -day lives, our day-to-day -day lives. 
and to be swept away with how busy we are with work, with social commitments. But when you're alone in your bed and you're thinking, that's when the demons creep in. And I feel quite privileged to have created something that allows, that gives someone that light in the dark, I hope, that gives them answers to the question that they're wondering at that time when everything is quiet, when everything else is switched off to say, actually, these are my fears at nighttime. And to be able to give them answers about their body and their fertility and their worries to an extent that we just haven't had up until now without going to multiple appointments and or to a fertility clinic and paying a lot of money to get those answers. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head with what you said before about not knowing our own bodies. And I think about contraception. Often young girls will get put onto contraception at 15, 16, 17 and never really know what their cycle is like. Then come off contraception when they're trying to conceive maybe in their 30s and have difficulties. And actually, I think some of that is attributed to the fact they never knew their own cycle and may have had irregular periods or Mm. conditions like PCOS. And, And it's all been masked by years of contraception. We just don't really get that opportunity to to learn. We're just the fear of pregnancy is instilled on us and then we do everything to avoid the symptoms. And what's hard about that, and it's one of my biggest bugbears, is putting adolescents on hormonal contraception. When you think about the process that a patient presents with symptoms Mm. indicative of menstrual dysfunction, whether it's pain, whether it's bleeding, whether it's anything, rather than actually saying your menstrual cycle is governed by a series of hormones, let's test your hormones and see What's at play? Mm. We screen for 18 of the most prevalent gynecological conditions that affect your reproductive health. Rather than screening for any one of those conditions that might be causing that menstrual dysfunction, or rather than even just testing your hormones at that point, at a critical point during your adolescence, when your hypothalamus, your pituitary and your ovaries are really starting to learn to talk to each other, we just give you exogenous hormones and Mm. say, take this. (laughs) It will cure you. It will make those symptoms go away. It's not curing anything. It's just making symptoms go away. And so unfortunately, it's the people who present with menstrual dysfunction who are far more likely to then come to us and say, I've actually been on my form of contraception for 15 years now because it's never a good day to bring those symptoms back. No. In your eyes, what is the time that we should be thinking about our fertility? Because it sounds like it's a lot younger than most people do. (laughs) I mean, I think fertility can be quite a scary word, but I think it should be more of an empowering and realistic conversation. Unfortunately, fertility has become so loaded. So you start talking to people early and you say you're fear-mongering. You talk to people late and people say, why didn't you tell me sooner? And I see this all the time. I mean, the amount of times people say this is just fear-mongering, saying about the statistics of infertility. And I say, talk to the people who come to me saying, why did nobody tell me? Who are so angry, who are so frustrated that they were never educated, never informed, and then no one tapped them on the shoulder to say your fertility will not last forever. And so it's it's a hard place to be in when you know we're almost under attack to say anything nowadays, even if it is just the statistics. So I don't think you are ever too young to know about your hormones or your fertility. Yeah, I think with any successful plan, it's preparation. And then it just seems this really loaded area that we kind of almost don't want to know until the point where 
you're in a situation where the stakes are really high, you're time pressured, it matters the most and you're making big decisions and kind of in the dark about everything that might have been going on in your 20s and early 30s. I mean, the head in the sand phenomenon really, it surprises me. A so lot I'm gonna of put, women. <laughs> I'm going to put my hands up. I was kindly sent a fertility health test and I haven't done it yet. <laughs> and my head is well and truly in the sand because I think to myself, if that tells me something I don't want to know, am I going to have to change my life? And it, it's scary. I think for some people, it's easy to think, I'll think about that later. At some point, it's going to click and I'm going to be willing to take action and I will do it. <laughs> but I, I definitely can empathize with people that have their head in the sand. I think if you reframe it and say, how long would I need to prepare for something? Yeah. What if in delaying it, I was throwing away any chances that I had? You are never as fertile as you are today. Yeah. <laughs> That's the reality. You're never as young as you are today. You're only getting older. And for me, it's about saying, I may have options that I'm literally throwing out the window by just not doing anything. And I do think that it's important to say, I can do this. And actually, no matter what the outcome, I have choices, but fewer choices tomorrow than I will today or next year than I will now. And when people say to me about doing something about it, what can I do about it? From a relationship standpoint, it can really make you make some decisions from a financial standpoint or preserving your fertility, you know, that's one of the biggest things people say, I can't afford to freeze my eggs. And then I say, well, maybe not now. And I'm not a proponent of egg freezing unless it is truly right for you. But putting away five pounds a day or a week, and you still might say five pounds a day is a lot actually, but you say, well, let's not have your coffee. Let's not go to, <laughs> let's not get your lunch out. Let's start preparing. There are ways that you can, even working from home two fewer days a week if you can, and start saying, right, I'm going to put away this small amount. So by next year, I can actually afford to do it. And I am affording myself the liberty of a little bit more autonomy, both in my relationships and in my mental headspace. Yeah. Okay, so much juice I want to get into. <laughs> you have collected a phenomenal amount of data through your app, Fertility Health, and the women that have used it. What are some of the most common causes of infertility you found? Age. Simply waiting too late. The biggest thing that shocked me was when we looked at our data to say, of the women who are actively trying to conceive, what are their lifestyle habits? You know, what... A big passion of mine is preconception health, getting yourself baby body ready, even if you're going to freeze your eggs, making sure you're giving your eggs the best possible chance. That three month at minimum window to say, can I be the healthiest version of myself? I always say like pregnancy is like a marathon. You wouldn't rock up to a marathon and just expect yourself to, to run it. Yeah. And pregnancy is is no different, you know, and giving yourself the best possible. Every single piece of literature out there that we don't talk about it shows that investing in preconception health not only impacts your pregnancy outcomes, complications, but your postnatal and your baby's health for life. So it's such an amazing investment to make mm. in your preconception health. But when we looked at the women who were actively trying to conceive, 8.6% were taking recreational drugs. Wow. 46% were drinking alcohol. And of those, 12% were drinking way above the national limit. So 
that's the type of thing that doesn't really come up in an appointment with a fertility doctor when they sit and they say, okay, tell me a little bit about you. Any drugs? No one says, yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, loads. Or have you been drinking? No, everyone's like, just, just a glass, you know, moderately. But when you ask people, what's moderate alcohol intake to you? Actually, we're really delusional about the true ranges. You know, a glass of wine a night is actually heavy drinking. Mm. It's not moderate, no. especially the size of glasses these days. And so I, I think where, again, there's a real disconnect with what is healthy for us in terms of our exposures. So again, a huge percentage of people just didn't exercise at all. Like, I mean, and we're not defining exercise as going up and getting and doing a run or getting on my bike and getting here, but it's, you know, just even a, a walk to work. Mm. The inactivity, the amount of alcohol, the amount of drug use and smoking really shocked me because I thought whatever chances you have, by leaving those in your life, you're really not giving yourself your best opportunity at all to get pregnant. So often the symptoms are one thing, but it's the lifestyle factors that are the biggest culprits. I actually think I saw a clip of um, you talking about how vaping can really affect sperm count. Yeah, we just presented data as well. <laughs> I love good new, new informed data, but showing the role of vaping on thyroid health and ovarian reserve. There is no data at present about vaping. It's still being touted as a healthier option to smoking. And yet you could never sit down and smoke 20 cigarettes. Yeah. The amount of nicotine in vapes and how tasty they are. People can sit indoors. Kids can do it. It is so dangerous for us. The fact that it's still being described as a smoking cessation device when actually you're literally giving somebody candy mm -hmm. and presenting it at a younger age and making it so accessible. Again, you couldn't sit in a room in a building and smoke multiple cigarettes throughout the day without the place getting a little bit smelly and uncomfortable and people getting a little bit annoyed, especially today. You know, we're not, not back in the day where people could smoke indoors. And yet with vaping, it just smells like perfume being sprayed in the air and it dissipates. So yeah, we did some, we did some experiments on sperm actually. And we did, we put mice in air controlled cages to see what the effect was and there's a significant effect on certainly sperm, but we've yet to see now, we've, we're, we're looking at the results now for fertility, but it does have an impact on your thyroid. So yeah, I would, wow. I would caution against vaping. So in terms of causes of infertility you found, age being one of them, lifestyle habits, what were some of the other causes? Gynecological conditions or? The sheer prevalence of gynecological conditions, yeah. I mean, gynecological conditions sound so serious and profound, but actually one in 10 women have polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is the most prevalent metabolic condition in women. And yet we're not counseled, we're not informed, we don't take into account that as a risk factor for fertility, the prevalence of endometriosis, the prevalence of thyroid imbalance, like thyroid issues. I think 20% of the female population is probably walking around with a thyroid imbalance. Mm. And, and that's reflected in global statistics, right? The number one prescribed drug in the world is thyroxine. So we know globally there's a problem with our thyroids and our hormones. And yet it's so often that we would just ignore that, the symptoms of thyroid imbalance. So mm. whether it's fatigue, weight gain, weight loss, hair loss, you know, people tend to blame themselves and self-disqualify for medical treatment because they'll say, well, I'm, 
I'm not really my at my healthiest at the moment. And mm. we, we tend to blame ourselves when we're not feeling our best. Yeah. So why is my fertility declining with age? Your fertility is no different to your skin elasticity. It's just a another factor of aging. When we talk about our ovarian reserve, that means the number of eggs that we have and we are born with all the eggs we'll ever have. And in a way, I hate that expression, even though it's used time and time again. But essentially, when we are growing as a fetus in utero, our germ cells or our egg cells are then being laid down. So it's amazing to think that from such a young age, we're carrying all those egg cells and we lose them at a quite a high rate of attrition throughout our lives. And that rate of attrition is different in different individuals. And I say that's no different to our skin. The reason I make the skin analogy is sometimes you look at a 30-year-old and she looks like she's 40. Sometimes you look at a 30-year-old and she looks like she's 20. Again, we look at our lifestyle factors. They can impact our rate of aging. But the ovary is the fastest aging organ in the body. And yes, we have different levels of exposures. We have different rates of aging in individuals. And there are individuals who can you know, have children much later in life. But there are many individuals who cannot. And so that egg reserve question comes into play. And when I mention about all of our egg cells being formed when we are in utero, our mother's lifestyle during pregnancy and our mother's exposures impact that ovarian reserve. So when, you know, people come to us and they say, my mom really struggled to have me, like take that as a risk factor, take it into account. Know that potentially if your mother had early menopause or had early infertility, you may also have the same. Wow. So those percentage rates of attrition of egg reserve. So what was that rate of decline on the average? Oh, that's like massively. It depends really. That <laughs> That's kind of a... Like if you get to a certain stage of your life, is 50% of your eggs gone? Oh, yeah. About 86% of your egg reserve is gone by the time you're 30. Okay. Wow. So, um, okay. You can't have children when you're born and you've got 100% of your egg reserve. So mm. it's a little bit of a misnomer to an extent. The most important thing to think about when you think about egg reserve is also egg health. Yeah. So there's this amazing U-curve when it comes to your ability to conceive. So let me explain the U-curve. When you're in your 20s, early 20s, sorry, like from 18 to 22, you have a really high rate of abnormal eggs. So aneuploidy, the not wrong number of chromosomes. That aneuploidy rate, so that error rate within your eggs, goes down the older you get and that gets higher again the older you get. So there's almost like a peak spot between, you know, 25 and 30, 32, where we have our best eggs. And then the risk factors start to go up again. And there's a lot of scientific explanation for this in terms of our chromosome stability. But what's amazing to me is there's almost an evolutionary protection on women from if you're too young to have children, that rate of error is quite high. And again, sweeps up when you start to past 35 starts to get. I mean, it's just frightening when you say about how our lifestyle and societal norms have shifted, but that curve hasn't shifted. (laughs) So, you know, a a woman at 30 now is equivalent to a few years younger, 10 years ago. It's like, I don't feel how I thought I would feel at 30. I don't feel as grown up as I felt like I would at 30. You never feel grown up. (laughs) (laughs) So what about men? Do men have a biological clock? Yes, they do. Everybody has a biological clock. I think it's the impact is probably less profound. But what we do see is that 
male sperm counts have significantly dropped in the last 50 years. And that, again, lifestyle factors, our exposures to endocrine disrupting chemicals are all having a huge impact on male fertility. And this is really reflected in the global statistics of how many people globally are infertile. So one in six individuals are infertile, heterosexual couples. But what's amazing to me is when you look at how many babies are born through IVF every year. So one to 2% of all babies in the US are IVF babies. When you think how expensive IVF is and what that rate might be if it was more affordable, it really goes to show what percentage of people are not able to have children. In fact, 10% of babies in Denmark are IVF babies. So we're really moving towards a trend where people need help to have a baby. And unless and until we start to educate people from a younger age, that will continue to be the trend. Mm. It's really shocking when you hear all the statistics and it's like, I feel like we should all know this. I hope everyone listens to this because this is information we all need to, we all need to learn. So often people try and get themselves kind of preconception ready at the moment that they're trying to conceive. They think we might have a baby soon. I'll start taking the supplements, reducing my alcohol and things. In general, it sounds like we should all be thinking about our fertility or our reproductive health all the time. What sort of things can people do to protect their ovarian reserve or their egg quality? And what can men do to improve the quality of their sperm? I think sometimes you can, I mean, I probably think about these things far too much to, to the point where I'm thinking about all of the things around me that, that impact our overall health. One of the problems when you talk about fertility or reproductive health is the assumption that it has to, to do with reproduction. And that's therefore this idea that, you know, you should only get ready when you're trying to conceive or if you want to conceive, rather than viewing reproductive health as being your overall health and menstrual health as being, you know, your menstrual cycle is one of your vital signs. So really viewing your menstrual cycle as being one of your vital signs means that you might be more attuned to it from a much younger age. Some of the things I think that we should do to better prepare our bodies is number one, just tracking our menstrual cycles and understanding where we are. In doing that, you understand your own norm. So you understand what's regular for you, whether that's the timing, the length of your cycle, how you bleed, when you bleed, how you feel and your symptoms. I think we are unfortunately so exposed to endocrine disrupting chemicals from what we eat to our air fresheners in every room, to candles being lit, to cosmetics, to shampoos, conditioners, to detergents. If I could spread a message that we need to start reading ingredients, not just of food, that would be it. Really start looking at what you put in your body. And I don't just mean through eating, I mean through you are consuming products by putting them on your skin. And I think that is why women are more prone to having higher rates of endocrine disrupting chemicals in their system is because we're we're told we need products. I'm like, my body is a temple, don't put anything near me unless it needs to go near me. And if it does, I look at the ingredients to see does it have perfumes which are unlabeled, hundreds of chemicals within these scented fragrances or whether or these bisphenols and every single chemical that is just thrown into almost every single product we have really does impact our our exposures. These chemicals that are in 
cosmetics and, and hair products and everything else and candles and scented diffusers, they're actually dangerous. They're mm. actually dangerous. A friend of mine justified it the other day. She was like, but it's a, it's this designer. And I was like, I don't care what designer it is. You're breathing it in mm. every day. And look at these chemicals that are in it. There's so many studies now listing the impact of these chemicals on our bodies. And yet we're surrounded by them. So I think just step one is just being aware of our consumption and our exposure to chemicals mm. and the impact that they're having on our lives. They, these chemicals are both known as forever chemicals in that they accumulate in our bodies. And xenoestrogens, they mimic estrogen. So they mimic estrogen. So the endogenous estrogen in our body is like, I've got nothing to bind to. Mm. And so that has serious implications for our overall health. And the reason I hammer this on, and forgive me if I'm losing you, but we've never seen higher levels of precocious puberty which is when you get, instead of like a 13-year-old having their first period, you're getting eight-year-olds having their first period, an average age in some areas of eight years old to have your first period. Yeah. And it's directly linked with the level of these bisphenols in their urine and the level of plastic exposure and chemical exposure. So it directly has an impact on our lives. So. Wow. One thing I love about those tips and things to be aware of is they lend themselves to every area of your life you know if someone takes up an exercise regime or they think about what they're putting in their body whether it's nutrition or chemicals it actually makes you healthier in all different components we're not just talking about our fertility mm. you know if you have those that awareness it's going to help your sleep it might help your weight management it might help your mood it, they all inter, like intertwine yeah so I hope people it can get a bit depressing because you're like <laughs> I can't get away from these poisons yeah but then similarly if you're doing something that helps your health you're helping more than one aspect of your health absolutely you're not just you know exercising to lose weight you might also be exercising to improve your sleep mental health and your mm, egg quality true. or sperm count yeah. so I think that's quite motivating good <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to touch a bit on infertility and people who may be suffering with low egg reserve or low egg quality. What are your thoughts on freezing of eggs? Is egg freezing safe? Yes, it is. I think going into an egg freezing journey, you need to be prepared. Yeah. You need to understand. So we bring people and hold their hand through an egg freezing journey by essentially doing all the prerequisite steps that you would take prior to the egg freezing, which is assessing your health, assessing your hormones, assessing your ovarian reserve giving you a scan and then bringing you through the journey with our partner clinics. The things to understand are the emotional and physical toll it will have on your body and allowing for that. So almost 90% of people, and it's different with egg freezing to infertility, but 90% of people going through infertility treatment report depression and even suicidal tendencies. Mm -hmm. It is When you think about the comparison of going through your monthly cycle, you know, pre-menstruation, a lot of us feel quite depressed. Mm. And if you're going through that monthly cycle, except you're amplifying it by giving yourself hormones to try and replicate, you know, as many eggs as you can, the downsides can be much more profound as well. In terms of it being safe, yes, so long as it's done and we monitor your hormones as you're stimulating somebody through a cycle. And to clarify, what you essentially do is you give hormones to try and mature as many eggs as possible. You then do a release or a trigger, which enables you to mature as many of those eggs as possible. Typically in a normal menstrual cycle, one 
egg would be matured and released mm. in an egg freezing cycle. We try and mature and then harvest as many eggs as possible. It is an incredibly powerful way of giving yourself reproductive autonomy and just better understanding where you're at. And you should have an idea of how many eggs you're going to get in an egg freezing cycle prior to that, just through looking at your ovarian reserve. What do you think about like corporate companies offering to pay for it to get you to work for longer? I personally think that in the absence of allowing somebody to screen their health, I mean, I my our motto is track your ovaries over your calories. You should be tracking every six months or tracking every year even to know what your rate of ovarian reserve decline is and what, what your fertility is, rather than just saying, I'm just going to freeze my eggs. Depending on what age or stage you're at, the idea that a corporate would come in, pay for you to freeze your eggs, say, we'll keep these bad boys on ice for a few years until you're until you know, till you're ready to go, I think there's there's a real moral question over that. In the absence of offering proper health benefits to women, in the absence of offering screening, I really think that that's the wrong angle to take. I think people can be quite naive at what you've just explained, the intensity of an egg freezing journey. It's not just literally harvesting a few eggs, it's months of all of that turmoil and emotional stress and symptoms. And I think it's a bit of a misconception that it's just a simple process. Let's get them out, freeze them, get back to work. I mean, it can be, but if you're prepared for it, that's fine. A lot of women, as a result of it being offered on work, just do it. Mm. And it's a it's a big endocrinological undertaking and emotional undertaking as well and physical as well you know you have to inject yourself every day for two weeks and you feel quite bloated and you feel not great it can take its toll and so trying to work alongside doing that without really taking acknowledgement for what you're going to put your body through Mm. I just think people should really make sure they're prepared what are some of the most common myths you hear about fertility and reproductive health you must see loads on social media I think the commonest myths around fertility mostly are to do with denial. So we all inherently have a little bit of denial. And yet we all have fear too. When we started fertility, everybody said, the only people who will do your test are those who are actively trying to conceive, those who are desperate to know whether they're fertile or not. And actually they're completely wrong. There are probably our highest user base are like 25, 28 to 32 year olds. You know, they're just curious about their reproductive health. And at the start of the health assessment that we built, we asked women, what brings you here? Are you actively trying to conceive? Are you experiencing symptoms? Are you planning for future babies? Or are you just curious? The majority of people are just curious or maybe planning for future babies. It's this innate question, as you mentioned at the beginning, can I hear it ticking all of a sudden? It's so unpopular to say that we would worry about our fertility when we have so much going on. We're so independent. We didn't need to worry about that because we're in control of our lives. But actually, it is a fear that so many people have and an innate question that we have. And of course it is. We have a monthly cycle, which reminds us every single month. So I, I just think, yeah, denial is probably the biggest, not necessarily myth, but biggest theme that I see. I think this will be an uncomfortable listen for many people that are in that state of denial, kind of like myself. It feels like a ticking clock. I'd love for you to share some kind of takeaway tips that people can do to tackle this head on, improve their fertility, improve their health and take a stance on this. I mean, I take the proactive approach to everything. I'm like, take your head out of the sand, 
look around, really become an expert in yourself. It's the greatest investment in anyone you will ever make. We make investments in friendships. We make investments in relationships. And yet so often we neglect the most important relationship, which is our own body and our own health and investing a little bit of time in understanding where you're at, what your health is, can be the most liberating and empowering thing you could ever do for yourself. I mean, I've had people come and hug me because they got a diagnosis through fertility and you think, why are you happy to have a diagnosis? And they're happy to finally have an answer. They're happy to finally not know that it's not just them. It's not just in their head or to have been dismissed by countless appointments to say, you should have just expected that because you're a woman. I think just there's no better day than than today to know yourself. And there's no easier way to do it. You can literally do it while lying in bed and going through the health assessment questions. And we built the health assessment to really educate you and to empower you as well to say, look, you're not alone. Here are the statistics of how many other people are feeling like this, but also this is why we're asking this. Mm -hmm. And so going through and answering that health assessment and doing a test that you can do from home, it's not really a big ask of yourself. You're not, we're not asking you to go anywhere. You can Mm -hmm. do it from the comfort of your home and get answers within a few days that could really live with you forever. And and I encourage, any, we'll, in a few months, we'll have an app that allows you to track your symptoms and your menstrual cycle and anything else. And I think that will be, and give you information on a day-to-day basis on the things that could be causing those symptoms. And I mean, really simple, useful information, like just increasing a food group for a week or so, or increasing your fiber intake. And these are the things that I think we all need as our guiding principles to help us just be better versions of ourselves. Yeah, I love that. I'd love to know when you've been collecting this data, have you seen any differences in rates of certain things or outcomes and disparity between like different ethnicities or racial groups? Something I see in, I work in genitourinary cancer trials and we see massive disparity between like minority groups and their outcomes from disease and they present differently and it's a really under-researched area. Have you found anything or you know of anything that Yes, we have. In fact, last year we launched a Black Women's Health Initiative to really get to understand why we do see these disparities. From a a social lens, it's very easy to blame social factors or differences of opinion. But when we built the health assessment, we wanted to take into account higher risk factors for certain pathologies. So for example, If you are a black woman and you tell us you have pelvic pain or you have instrumental bleeding, we triage you much more seriously, not no more seriously, but that is a far higher risk factor for fibroids because we know that black women are more prone to fibroids and it's important to take into account those risk factors. Equally, women of South Asian origin go into menopause on average four years earlier. So if you're presenting with hot flushes or any of those classic symptoms, but you're quite young, we're going to triage you and say, we can anticipate this because we know from a global lens that there are differences in our risk factors. When we did the Black Women's Health Initiative and we launched a full educational resource called the Inequality Report, please download it, share it. It really covers everything from contraceptive use and and, and rates. So, you know, almost 70% of white women take hormonal contraception, yet only about 30% of black women will take 
hormonal contraception. And I think that lends to a lack of trust in the medical system. And we're now seeing a lot of women move away from hormonal contraception because they're actually saying, maybe I should question mm. this. But we definitely have higher risk factors in different ethnic groups. And those should be acknowledged and taken into account when it comes to building and using medical guidelines to bring people to care much sooner. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it goes across nearly every disease. It seems to be so underrepresented and just more, there needs to be more research on those differences. I think that we've covered lots of heavy topics. And like I said, it's going to feel uncomfortable for some people to listen. What would be your takeaway message that you want women and men listening to this to take away from you? Probably that it's never too late to get information about your body and that as bad as it might feel, to get a bad result or the results you didn't want to get. If you're putting your head in the sand in the first place, it's because you have that fear. And you may not acknowledge that fear, but you're carrying it around with you and you're carrying around wonder and doubt and potentially worry. So actually acknowledging something and doing something about it might be quite liberating in the end. Yeah, I think I needed to hear that. <laughs> I have a little tradition on this podcast, which I'm asking every guest at the end. What is your vision of health? What does health look like to you? Health to me is food. Good food means good health. We shouldn't need medication unless we're actually sick. And I think that seems so simplistic. But when I mentioned about reading the ingredients of the cosmetics or the hair products, reading the ingredients of food is one of the most important steps you can take to determine whether or not you're going to let this go into your body. Mm -hmm. And I think so few of us read the ingredients. We are sold foods that we're told are healthy, branded items that are really reinforced as being health foods. And in reality, when you just take a quick look, there should not be more than 10 ingredients in anything. And you should be able to pronounce every single one of them. And yet the majority, even bread, I picked up a loaf of bread and I thought, mono, disodium, phosphates, I mean, palm oil, all of this list. It's like reading the materials and methods of an experiment I just did. You know, it's just not normal for that to be in a food group that should literally have yeast, flour and water in it. Mm. So I always think that about foods that last on the shelves for months. How can that be? Yeah, I completely, I completely agree with that. I think we have been sold, particularly my generation and you know, ones before have been sold the lie about calories. And so if it's low calorie, it's better yeah. for you. And actually often when you are consuming these things that are low calorie, it's because they lack nutrition. Or they have, you know, alternative sugars in them and they have sweeteners that are really bad for you. So yeah, yeah. I think just, just food, think about food. That is the key to good health. I love it. It's been so interesting to chat to you. Thanks. I hope that everyone has learned so much from you. I'm sure they have. I certainly have. And I just want to thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Vision of Health. I hope you take away some realistic and practical health advice that you can actually incorporate in your busy lives to become the healthiest version of yourself. If you want to hear more from me, then make sure you hit the subscribe button, share this episode, and also go follow me on Instagram, at DrFrankieJS, where I post a regular series of Women's Health Wednesdays with our wonderful sponsors, FemFresh, who you can also catch on socials at femfresh underscore UK and on their website, femfresh.co.uk. I'll see you next time.
Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.